Hello, welcome back to MLEX's podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the week with the assistance of our team of reporters around the globe. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and it's great to have your company again, especially if you're listening in the Northern Hemisphere, hopefully from a reasonably cool holiday destination. And we have a great privacy yarn for you today of particular interest to fans of soccer or football of the round ball variety. A controversial data protection penalty imposed on a Dutch football TV broadcaster has been overturned in court. But there are still wider questions about the interpretation of the GDPR's legitimate interests rule. And Sam Clark will be joining us in around 10 minutes time to walk us through that story. First up, though, to, yes, well, what else? Brexit. And you'll remember that one of the promises of the United Kingdom's controversial departure from the European Union was that financial services industries in the City of London would break free of EU red tape. However, UK regulators appear not to have received the Brexit dividend memo, as demonstrated by the recent clash over how much capital insurers should have in their coffers. The government had pledged to make life easier for insurers, but the industry is claiming that under new proposals, insurers may in fact have to hold more capital than they would have under EU rules. It's a clash that's feeding into the ruling Conservative Party's leadership contest, the political event which has made for a more lively summer break than usual. Fiona Maxwell is MLEX's senior financial services correspondent. She's based in London and she has been following this story for us. Uh, Fiona, so what is the issue here from the insurer's perspective? So this is kind of a a post-Brexit discussion. So after Brexit, there was a pledge by UK ministers and by the UK regulator to cut capital requirements for insurers um, via changes to the EU's Solvency II directive, uh, which can now be amended in the UK as the UK is no longer part of the bloc. So the, the UK Treasury, which is the finance ministry here, put proposals out in April. Uh, and some aspects of the legislation are what insurers had expected and hoped for. Um, but to put it bluntly, uh, some other parts were not. Um, and according to the Association of British Insurers, which is the UK's main lobby group for the sector, this promised capital cut, uh, which the government said would be around 10 to 15 percent, so not insignificant, um, will not actually materialise. That's according to the ABI. Um, and in some cases, insurers would actually face higher capital requirements. Um, and that has resulted in the ABI saying that the UK's reformed package is actually worse than the EU version. And that goes against this rhetoric of Brexit delivering benefits for the City of London, which is sometimes known as this kind of Brexit dividend. So this sounds very much like a technical and industry specific issue, right? So why has this become so political? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really fair fair comment to, to make. Um, it is a technical subject, um, but it's become extremely political because of this exact rhetoric around Brexit. So al- although we're set to have a new prime minister uh, next month, um, whatever happens, we will continue to have a government in the UK that wants to promote the benefits that Brexit has brought. Um, and I won't offer my opinions here as to whether that's happened or not, but it's, it's obvious to see that the UK is in the midst of a bit of a struggle right now. So whether that's the fault of Brexit or not, some commentators say, you know, Brexit has played a role in certain issues. 
uh, like, you know, long queues to leave the UK um, because of new requirements to check and stamp passports um, in continental Europe, things like the higher cost of living, cancelled flights. It, it all kind of adds up to this this desire by politicians to search uh, for this Brexit dividend, you know, to, to prove that leaving the EU was a good thing for the UK. And amending Solvency 2 has become a prime example of this, uh, an example of where Brexit could work for the City of London, as the point of freeing up capital is uh, supposedly possible now the UK has left the EU. Um, and it's it's done so that insurers can invest in long-term assets, which should help, in theory, in the fight against climate change. And, you know, regulators, uh, the government and the industry all kind of agree that the existing EU law has prohibited that. So we've ended up with this tussle between the prudential regulator, which says there's no free lunch to be had in insurance regulatory changes, uh, and the insurance sector, which wants the regulator to go further. And and somehow, despite this being, you know, as technical as financial regulation gets, the issue has become political at the highest level. Uh, so current Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is uh, currently our outgoing Prime Minister, uh, has been said to be getting very annoyed with the regulators over, you know, what was described as excessively cautious behaviour. Because he was the person that uh, got Brexit done, as it were, so he needs to deliver uh, even if he is the outgoing Prime Minister, he no doubt uh, has an interest in delivering that Brexit dividend. Exactly. Yeah. And so how could the ongoing UK political leadership race, which we're uh, watching with uh, such uh, fascination, how could that play a role in this debate? So both candidates that kind of in this final race, that's Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, have cited Solvency 2 specifically as an area where they would do more if they were voted to be leader of the Conservative Party and, and therefore UK Prime Minister. Um, and, you know, before it was whittled down to just two candidates, other ministers or other politicians brought it up as an issue where they, you know, they think the UK should do more to you know, seize these opportunities of Brexit. And right now, uh, if we believe the polls, Liz Truss is the, the favourite to win and she's pledged to scrap Solvency 2 and, and scrap other in EU inherited legislation. And, you know, if she wins, whether that will actually happen in practice is another matter because, you know, I, I, I can't imagine there would just be no insurance regulation in the UK and obviously starting to write a whole new piece of legislation from scratch would be quite a lot of work. But it just goes to show the um, the intensity of this debate and the fact that once we have a new prime minister in place, this this debate, this argument, it's just, it's not going anywhere. Okay, so these issues are clearly feeding into the leadership contest, but is it correct to say that this tussle has in fact been going on uh, for a while and that it's become uh, more of a headline political issue as a result of the UK leadership contest? Yes, very much so. Um, and you noted earlier that this is, you know, a, a technically, um, sorry, at its heart, it's technically a technical discussion. Um, so it's been going on really since last year uh, when the PRA, which is the, the Bank of England's prudential regulator, began to put out some slightly more cautious wording um, along the lines of capital cuts will be achieved for insurers, but changes to solvency too cannot be viewed in isolation. Policyholder protection should be prioritised above all else. And as I mentioned before, there's no free lunch. Just because we left the EU doesn't mean that we should scrap all the protections that we have in place for insurers um, and therefore for policyholders. I, I would note at the time of all of this happening and at the time of these April proposals that were put out by the government, uh, Sunak was the finance minister. So his pledge to overhaul insurance legislation if he becomes prime minister does leave a few unanswered questions because, you know, he was 
he was in role at the time when the proposals came out and in role as um, as finance minister. So I would say the leadership bid in the last few months has really politicised Solvency 2, although it's been an issue that's been hanging around for a while. It's really become very political and that could be a good thing for the insurance industry as it's become so high profile that perhaps politicians will have no choice but to concede on some further changes. But also important to remember that it's the PRA, the prudential regulator, that writes the ultimate rules. So I would expect there to be a lot more to come on this, whether it's, you know, more debates or some more kind of upset parties. It's definitely an issue that's going nowhere. And Fiona, what do we need to look out for next? Is it just about who wins the leadership uh, contest, whether Truss or, or Sunak, or is there more to it than that? Um, I, th- I think there is more to it than that. So it's it's less than a month now um, until we'll, we'll, we know who the new prime minister will be. So that is obviously the kind of first next step in, in the, the big picture of what's happening with Solvency 2. Both candidates have pledged to tear up the EU rulebook, whatever that means. Um, so in theory, regardless of the new UK leader, we will see more calls to make Solvency 2 changes work for insurers and, you know, again, to prove the benefits of Brexit. I, I would say I'd, I'd probably take some of what they're saying with a slight pinch of salt because the new prime minister will have huge issues to deal with when they get their feet under the desk. You know, the soaring energy prices, double digit inflation, the cost of living crisis, what to do with taxes. But on the regulatory agenda, Solvency 2 is clearly going to be a very big topic. It, it just depends whether, you know, the new prime minister will be able to sufficiently influence changes that are ultimately the responsibility of the finance ministry, but also the prudential regulator, which is an independent apolitical regulator. And, you know, the, the PRA has no plans to let politics get in the way of its decisions over policyholder safety. So, like I say, we, we may continue to see a bit of a tussle on this, but ultimately it is a, a technical regulatory issue and it just depends how much politics gets in the way, I would say. Fiona, thank you so much for following this story across the summer and throughout this very long leadership campaign. We really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Fiona Maxwell, MLEX Senior Financial Services Correspondent, speaking to me there from London. And Fiona's analysis of these developments and their connection to the broader political debate now underway is ready for you to read. Our website is as follows, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for all of the very best of our reporting and analysis. Our subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of post-Brexit Solvency 2 soul-searching, and there's plenty in it, which is certainly a testament to MLEX's detailed reporting of this issue from both London and Brussels. There's everything you need to make sense of what's going on. You're with MLEX's weekly podcast, James Paniki with you, and coming up, how soccer broadcasting has sparked an EU-wide disagreement over the application of European privacy rules. And if I haven't mentioned this already, let me remind you that you can subscribe to MLEX podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. To the Netherlands now, where a controversial data protection fine against a TV station broadcasting soccer has been overturned by a court. The suggestion is that the Dutch privacy watchdog had gone too far by denying the broadcaster protection under the legitimate interests legal basis of EU privacy provisions. It has been a gripping tale and one that is now reverberating around Europe. Our reporter Sam Clark has been covering the story and he's speaking here with MLEX's Laurel Henning. 
And for the benefit of our North American and Australian listeners, the football we're talking about here is indeed soccer. So Sam, what's this case about exactly and what's happened so far? Uh, so it goes back to November 2019 uh, when the Dutch Data Protection Authority fined uh, football TV. Um, I, should spe- I should say that's, that's not spelt the English way. It's a Dutch word, but it, I'm not going to try and say it in Dutch, uh, which is a football streaming site. Uh, they fined them €575,000. Uh, the regulator said football TV had no legitimate interest in doing what it was doing, which was streaming football games. Uh, that ruling um, is in line with uh, the Dutch DPA's legitimate interests guidance, which states that purely commercial interests can't be a legitimate interest under the general data protection regulation. Um, the sort of background of the case is that the, the website filmed children playing football and streamed it live, and they did sort of various bits of analytics alongside that, and they said that helped uh, the children improve their football, also let people watch along uh, online, parents and friends and so on. But the regulator said, no, that's an intrusion on their privacy. An appeal court overturned the regulator's decision in November 2020. Then the regulator appealed that, uh, went up to the highest Dutch administrative court. Um, and at the end of July, that court said again that the regulator was wrong. Um, it's It's worth noting that Although the court said the regulator was wrong, it didn't rule on the the sort of crucial central uh, question in the case, which is whether a, quote, purely commercial interest uh, can be a legitimate interest under the GDPR. Um, It basically said that the regulator had failed to properly consider some of the other non-commercial interests, things like uh, getting parents more involved in their kids' football games and helping coaches analyse the games and, and that sort of thing. And because it hadn't considered that, it wasn't a sort of purely commercial interests question. And so there was no need for the court to to rule on that on that point. Okay, so there have been lots of different steps in terms of hearings and procedural steps. And then it sounds like there are a few different moving parts to this this case as well, Sam. But it also seems to centre around, you've mentioned the legitimate interests rule, which is, of course, part of Europe's GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. Um, What is this and, and why is it so important? Okay, so legitimate interests is one of six legal bases under the GDPR that allows organisations to process data. Essentially, without a legal basis, you can't process data. Uh, Probably the most well-known of these, which a lot of people encounter, is consent, uh, which is sort of fairly self-explanatory. But when the GDPR came into force in 2018, um, it became much harder to obtain really truly valid consent. Um, And so a lot of organisations now use legitimate interests for a lot of their data processing. Um, The way it works is they don't have to get permission as such, but the processing does need to be necessary and it needs to be balanced against individual rights. So they do a balancing test, which is is known to be quite difficult. Uh, It's quite a broad rule. Um, So things that count as legitimate interests can be commercial interests, although obviously the question here is whether they can be purely commercial interests. Um, or sort of broader societal benefits, things like the ones I mentioned before about letting parents watch games remotely and so on. And it's interesting because on the face of it, it would seem that consent would be kind of the most privacy-protective legal basis. But some people, some privacy advocates, actually argue that companies essentially trick people into giving consent. So it's actually not that good from a privacy perspective. 
uh, whereas there's more due diligence involved in, in legitimate interests. Um, so although companies don't have to get permission, it's in many ways better for privacy. Um, and from the sort of corporate point of view, um, this is a really important question because legitimate interest is so commonly used. If it suddenly became much harder to rely on it, to use it, a lot of companies and their lawyers would basically have to review the fundamentals of how they process data. Okay, so it's sort of avoiding that click-wrap idea of consent and looking more at sort of exactly. weighing the balance of business interests, legitimate interests of getting users' information. Exactly. And has anyone else weighed in on this issue? Um, so the European Commission, the EU executive, uh, actually wrote to the Dutch Data Protection Authority about the guidance uh, back in March 2020. That only recently became public. Uh, a Dutch newspaper reported it. Uh, and in that letter, uh, the Commission told the Dutch regulator that its interpretation of legitimate interests was not in line with the GDPR, not in line with guidance from the European Data Protection Board, which is the umbrella body of EU data protection authorities, nor was it in line with case law of the European Court of Justice. The letter said, this is a short quote here, uh, it's difficult to reconcile the strict interpretation with the intended effect of what the EU legislators wanted. So that's quite a sort of firm stance, coming down quite hard on it. Uh, but sort of in response to that letter, the Dutch regulator told us, um, and this was before the football TV judgment, that it stood by its position. It basically said just the possibility of making money can't be a legitimate interest. And it's sort of obviously, again, worth noting that the, the football TV judgment didn't specifically comment on this point. So we're not actually any closer to getting an answer. And after the football TV judgment, the regulator said in a statement to us again that despite the ruling, it doesn't really give it should, shouldn't give companies free reign to sort of use and abuse the legitimate interest rule. You know, they they seem to be standing by their position to some extent, although they acknowledge they got some things wrong. Uh, and one more thing, we're expecting guidance from the European Data Protection Board, that umbrella body, um, which should clarify things. Uh, but we don't know when that will, will be. And in terms of any other lawsuits underway, are there any other cases where the legitimate interest rule is, is such an important issue? Uh, so there's two. Um, another Dutch case um, involving enforcement against the Dutch Royal Tennis Association. The DPA clearly has something about sports clubs. Um, <laughs> that case is also about the interpretation of legitimate interests. Um, and we're expecting a judgment very soon, pretty much any day now, um, from the Amsterdam District Court. Uh, there was a, a sort of interim ruling in that case, uh, and that indicated that the court intends to refer some questions about the legitimate interest rule to the European Court of Justice. So that's a place where it could finally be resolved, and there may be some interaction between that uh, and the European Data Protection Board's guidance, but that will become clear at a later point. Uh, and then sort of in a, in a wider context, there was another... Uh, sort of enforcement incident recently where several data protection authorities, the Irish, Italian and Spanish regulators, they intervened uh, against TikTok, the, the video sharing app, uh, because TikTok had planned to change its legal basis from consent to legitimate interests for targeted advertising. And it was right on the cusp of making that change, but it paused it sort of hours before it was meant to go ahead because the regulators were looking into it and it's remaining in discussion with the regulators about it. We don't know what will happen there yet. You know, we, we don't know exactly what action the regulators will take. We don't know what conclusion they'll come to in their conversations. But what happens there might be a sort of a fairly useful indicator of where regulators fall on the use of legitimate interests. And obviously, TikTok is a, a very large and very important company. So 
um, it'll be interesting to see what conclusion they come to. Sam, this is obviously a case with lots of wide-ranging implications and other cases that are linked to it that I'm sure you'll be reporting on for our subscribers very soon. But for now, thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks very much. Sam Clark is a London-based correspondent with MNEX covering data privacy and security. He was speaking with Laurel Henning from Sydney. His most recent report on this story, co-written with our Brussels-based reporter Cynthia Crowett, has been tossed over the paywall and is ready for you to read. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. You'll see a tab called News Hub. Just click on that and you'll be able to read the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. There's also an archive of this humble podcast, which you may want to tuck into as you ease into your Northern Hemisphere summer. Now, I do have to wind things up for today. Next week, we have something very different in store for you. An audio documentary brought to you by Laurel Henning, who you just heard now, and it will take you behind the scenes of Australia's first criminal cartel trial in recent history. She'll speak to some of the central players who will reveal all of the until now unreported drama that engulfed the prosecution and the court process as defence lawyers desperately tried to secure acquittals as jury members started to drop out of the process. It's an incredibly ambitious piece of reporting and I hope you'll be able to have a listen to it next week. That's it for now. MLEX's podcast is produced and presented by me, James Paniki, with the assistance of MLEX's marketing team in London. From everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Music